Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um, and more importantly, uh, today I get to speak with uh, 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 Dr. Lavanya Vensani, who is a professor at Shawnee State University. We'll be speaking about a brand new 2022 uh, uh, Bloomsbury publication entitled uh, Hinduism in Middle India. Uh, the subtitle is uh, Narasimha, the Lord of the Middle. Uh, Lavanya, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Raj. Uh, thank you for having me here. I'm uh, really thrilled and honored to be here. Well, uh, the honor is all ours. Um, the podcast is becoming quite the meeting place for our field, <laughs> so I'm delighted, uh, uh, delightful to see it um, fructify in the world. Um, so uh, you've been a busy beaver since last we've spoke, uh, turning this book out. Um, Tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book. This this um, this book was in the making for a long time, um, as uh, as many of our colleagues know. I have written a lot about Narasimha, and uh, I grew up in Andhra Pradesh, which is uh, the place associated with uh, Narasimha. I I call it the Leela Stali of Narasimha because the um, uh, incarnation and stories of Narasimha are placed here. Um, so uh, I would say it's been with me for a long time. I visited many of the temples uh, as a young uh, child and a young person. Uh, and um, uh, presented a number of articles and written about it. Uh, I have presented at AR, uh, at AR Atlanta, uh, there was, you know, I spoke about good and evil in uh, uh, Hindu tradition. Of course, Narasimha, you know, shows this big division between the good and evil and uh, their representation. So, so the story had been with me for a long time. I had worked on it for a long time. Um, and uh, it's, it's association with, um, like, uh, prehistory and uh, uh, and it's um, it's connection to the locale uh, of middle india the madhya desha uh, only came to me uh, after a lot of research uh, initially uh, you know it it was not uh, uh, not obvious doesn't really occur when you see the stories and study them so so it's be, it's been with me for a long time but the central theme uh, gradually dawned on as I worked on it more and more. So as many listeners will will, will no doubt be aware, uh, Narasimha is one of the uh, most famous of the um, often 10 uh, avatars of Vishnu, um, 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 uh, the man-lion, the man-lion incarnation, and there's the story of Pralada and Hiranyakashipu uh, and... Um, and uh, it's a fascinating myth cycle. Um, let's first talk about what you're studying. Are you primarily studying text? Are you studying a myth cycle? Are you studying religion on the ground? You know, what is what is the primary uh, focus uh, of the book? Would you say? Um, I would say it's it's a comprehensive examination of all of the above. 
you know, for a, for a long time, Narasimha had been studied in silos. You know, there is an examination of text, there is an examination of practice, folk arts. Um, there is an examination of, you know, temples, but uh, they haven't been brought together. So, so this book, I actually try to bring all of this together uh, because a comprehensive examination of multiple sources uh, is important to understand uh, the origin and the evolution of religion in India. Uh, if we keep them separate, uh, if we keep practice uh, folk genre and uh, classical texts separate, it's only going to give us haphazard understanding of religion in India. So, uh, so that's what happened with Narasimha. So, uh, so in order to you know, bring a complete understanding of religion in Middle India, as well as Narasimha, I, I examine all of these three together. And so just to, just to clinch it for the audience, the three are uh, classical texts, and and um, the the um, the popular practices, uh, you know, the, the practices that you would see in temples like uh, Tirunallu and uh, Holy Days and all that, theater festivals associated with Narasimha, uh, and uh, the the folk arts, the Ogukata, Harikata, the the folk uh, storytelling traditions. So classical well, story. Folk storytelling tradition and practices, the theater as well as the fasting and the temple practices. It's fascinating that at this point, uh, first of all, I mean, it, it, it's a fascinating uh, and important um, um, uh, methodology, I think, to to dovetail what we see in texts with uh, obviously what we see on the ground. But it, it's so interesting that. In in these times, the the, the classical narratives, um, you know, for example, the Puranas are classical narratives, part of the classical corpus, but but at some point, um, they would have been, you know, some fifteen ish centuries ago. You know, the Puranas are moving targets, as we well know. Um, they would have been folk narratives that folks would have been so um, 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 forced to pay attention to because of their vibrancy and their life of practice that uh, some smart pundits came together and said, hey, let's give these uh, these, these folk tales uh, proper Sanskrit text, shall we? Um, so I, I find it so fascinating that, that the one spoke narratives that were assimilated as, as the product narratives, where, where we see the story of Narasimha, they're now canon. And we have to look at, you know, even more folk narratives. Right. Right. <laughs> um, um, uh, it, yeah. So exactly as you said, uh, you know, all of our classical texts are also oral texts at some point in time. Uh, including the Vedas. The, our classical texts and our uh, practices are not written on the paper. They were actually written in the minds of the people, uh, the, the, the minds of um, dedicated people who could remember and recollect and uh, pass them on. So, um, so calling it, you know, classical genre and folk genre sometimes, you know, seems uh, a bit of, you know, oxymoron uh, because, you know, I, everything was oral. Everything was popular. Everything was recollected by, you know, uh, people who can remember. So, uh, so the classical genre, of course, you know, was uh, set to writing uh, early on, 
that's the only difference. Uh, and the folk genre is uh, set to writing a little bit later. Uh, and in between, we have these archaeological sources, the temples, the sculptures, the, you know, the early, um, uh, which shows the continuity uh, of the stories from the classical to the folk tradition. Uh, so we have this background of, you know, sculptures and uh, all these things. Uh, and practices, of course, the practices come to us from uh, from the classical texts. Uh, you know, the classical um, Upanishads also uh, include uh, Narasimhavratam and all that. So, uh, is this the first uh, such in-depth study on Narasimha? I I would think so. Um, I, I'm. As far as I know, I have researched uh, all the work that is uh, available on Narasimha up to this point. Um, th there is classical work uh, done by Biardo and uh, Cypher, uh, and there is uh, popular genre work done by Emig and um, Eva Borek. Um, but other than that, uh, th there is very little uh, uh, work done on Narasimha and very little done on bringing together all these different genres together. So I would say this is the first comprehensive work on Narasimha, uh, trying to bring together and trying to understand exactly uh, what happened uh, and how the historical development of Narasimha uh, happened throughout history, uh, at least more than two millennia old. Uh, because we have an early sculpture of Narasimha datable to uh, kind of uh, Vaishali. The Vaishali excavations are dated between 600 BCE to 300 BCE. Uh, but, you know, in those days, um, the, the, the excavators gave, uh, you know, different layers. So, so Hinduism is always given a little bit later layer. Uh, so the 600 BCE is considered to be Buddhist and the later uh, layer is kind of considered to be Hindu. Uh, 300 BCE, but I would really like to give it a, a little bit early uh, period because, you know, we have found inscriptions and um, data from four, 400 BCE onwards uh, on Krishna and Vaishnavism, Vishnu uh, in the Vaishali region. So, so I would say Narasimha, the, the, the seal that was found uh, should be dated to 400 BCE uh, to the beginning of Vaishnavism. So, so that tells us uh, that, you know, the, the, the practice um, has at least been consistent right from the beginning of uh, early Vaishnavism, uh, the 400-500 BCE, if not earlier, uh, because the Vedic references put it a little bit earlier. But uh, the, the, the actual uh, temple or seals, or um, this evidence comes from uh, 400 BCE onwards. What's the primary argument of the book? The primary argument? <laughs> argument, just thrust, aim, objective. You know, this is not a, 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 this is not a, a conference. Uh, um, we're not at the AAR Madison where, you know, where I may accost you with a, with, with, with a very specific question and expect a response. I'm, I'm teasing, you know, <laughs> in a conversational manner. You know, what is the book primarily hoping to accomplish right the the, the the central and our central objective of the book is we have to study middle india um, because it holds a lot of historical data 
that's what I do here. And the central information that comes from Middle India, the Madhya Desha, also provides us information about the historical development of Hinduism, which goes against the assumed notions of uh, invader versus indigenous. Uh, in uh, India, uh, as it happened with the colonial regime, uh, as Britishers began, uh, history was hijacked and this new theory was introduced where uh, everything is analyzed with the point of uh, invader versus indigenous. So the invaders came in uh, and of course, you know, killed most of us uh, and imparted the new religion and new uh, information to us. Uh, a few of the survivors, um, uh, even though there is no evidence for it, uh, there are no huge mass graves or no uh, huge uh, stories on how uh, these mass massacres might have happened or invasions have happened. Uh, this becomes the central argument of uh, studying anything related to India. Uh, but when we study Narasimha, uh, we have a clear uh, continuous origin from historical sources. Uh, from, from 600 BC onwards, we have this historical evidence. And from uh, from Neolithic and Paleolithic period onwards, we have lion depictions uh, and Vedas, of course, have descriptions of lion, uh, the roaring lion and uh, the lion that was, you know, uh, going on the uh, mountains. Uh, and we also have information about the Namuchi story where uh, Namuchi was killed without using the weapons. So, the, so both the themes of lion is there and uh, killing a demon, demon uh, without using weapon is there uh, in the Vedas. And we also find this continuity in the historic sources. Uh, the prehistoric caves, uh, of course, have a lot of lion depictions. Uh, some of them are, you know, so similar uh, to what we see now, you know, the sitting lion or standing lion. Uh, some of the depictions that we see in, uh, um, in Padampur are... Um, um, Simhachalam, uh, the depictions of Narasimha appear very similar to these uh, prehistoric depictions of the standing lion or sitting lion. So, so there is a historical uh, continuity of themes uh, and ideas, uh, even though practice comes from 600 BC onwards. Um, it, this helps us understand uh, the, the indigenous origin of religion, indigenous practices, indigenous development of uh, religious practices within India, uh, and then how, right from the beginning, as you mentioned, everything was oral, right? Even the Vedas were oral. So, so all this uh, actually comes from uh, the embedded practice of a, of a civilization that was here for a long time, uh, for a millennia or more, uh, for, for, for a long time, for five millennia or more. So, so uh, the, 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 the examination is to examine the stories of uh, Narasimha, but uh, the secondary objective is to understand the religion, uh, how the understanding of central or middle Indian religion might contribute to the understanding of evolution of religion in India and how this might be counter to the assumed notions of Indian religion uh, in terms of uh, invader versus indigenous, uh, which, which doesn't seem uh, possible in this case. Because the ethnic, you know, the tribal uh, notions are still part of uh, Narasimha.
uh, which is uh, which is a reminder of the prehistoric uh, Paleolithic Neolithic religion uh, in this region. Which specific uh, regional phenomena do you study? Um, I study the middle India. The middle, I actually take uh, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh as the middle, uh, central. Uh, but I also take the states that, that flank this region. Uh, Orissa, uh, Maharashtra, uh, Maharashtra, Chhattisgarh, uh, and Karnataka. Because they also have a lot of information. Um, the original stories of origin and uh, activities are connected with uh, Andhra Pradesh and uh, Telangana, but reincarnations of Narasimha and uh, visits of Narasimha to different regions is found in uh, Maharashtra, Chhattisgarh, Orissa, and, uh, uh, and Karnataka. So, so, so it's, it's, it's the central region and then the regions that flank it. So, so it's the Madhya Desha of India. What would you say if you could, if you could summarize or generalize, what would you say is uh, the primary theme or work of the Narasimha myth cycle? If you're taking the, uh, so there are two aspects here. Uh, that's what I discuss here. The, the, the theological, the, the cosmogonic, uh, the, the Hindu, uh, Hindu understanding of the relations between the divine world and the human world. And the second one is uh, historical. Uh, so I will discuss first the, the, the religious world. The world within the text, the, the, the sort of what's right. happening, and then and then tell us about the world behind the text. Right, right. So, so the history and uh, the first I'll discuss this cosmogonic understanding and the cosmology of Hinduism, and second I'll go with his history. So, so the cosmology uh, of Hinduism uh, has numerous worlds. Uh, the universe, the Hindu universe, is made up of numerous worlds. Uh, and uh, um, and he, Earth is in the center. There are three walls beneath us, three walls above us. Uh, and most importantly, the world of gods is above us and the world of evil uh, is below us. So the, so the crux of the story is when Hiranyakashipu uh, ruled, uh, he had a special boon from Brahma that, you know, he, he won't have a death by any weapons or anything. You know, he has this special clauses uh, that he requested and then inducted into his death. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, the, the world. So once he has all these uh, special uh, boons given to him, uh, he becomes immutable. Uh, and then he reverses the world order. Uh, the reverses the world order means he actually inverted the world order, which means the world of gods went down and the world of evil went up. So he's above the human world and he's ruling the world. But when the axis is upturned, when the axis is overturned, what happens is the time doesn't move forward, it moves backward. So when he turned it, the world began moving backward. So instead of going forward as, as in the Kalpas, the Kalpa you know, uh, and Yugas, it actually started moving back. Uh, so the moving back, is actually not good. So, so the story involves these two themes, uh, the time and the space. The, the space and time, both of them are connected and uh, form a continuum. Uh, when one is overturned, the other is overturned. 
so when the world is overturned the time is overturned instead of moving forward it's moving backward uh, and uh, of course there is discussion on this uh, and uh, the discussion also involves um, vishnu taking up this narasimha which which is a form that doesn't belong to any any uh, living being or divine being uh, and which is also not part of any of these worlds so he is outside of this cosmological or cosmogonic world so he's he's vishnu outside of this uh, and when he is killing hiranyakashipu he was not just killing hiranyakashipu he was turning the world back into its uh, original axis and he was also turning the time back on its actual path so so he becomes the special point here is he becomes shiva only shiva is the one who can turn the time shiva is the controller of time that's why he is called mahakala kala and end of time and all that so so vishnu by becoming narasimha he assumes the qualities he takes the qualities of shiva by being outside of this creation the universe and then uh, turning uh, up turning the world returning it to the order and also uh, turning time uh, back on its path so so he is setting the clock right you know that's what it was so 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 narasimha um of course appears as uh, narasimha and then you know he takes advantage of the boon and all that but there is there is deep theological and symbolic meaning to it uh, on how hinduism understands the world and its continuity uh, within the divine world Uh, the, 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 always yeah always that's where i live this is where i live this is where my house is the the, the, the deep implied assumed baked in um 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 you know tomes and tomes of 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 of, of knowledge and philosophy that's encoded in something simple as you know uh, a, a symbolic uh, entity <laughs> Uh, there's so much there there's so much there and also of course it's open to interpretation but it's uh, right. extraordinarily rich uh, just very briefly you know umsha as much as you've looked at the, the 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 narrative i looked at it to to translate it for the um the uh what did i just publish oh the stories behind the poses right <laughs> and so for <laughs> for for one of the for one of the poses uh it's connected with with uh, this avatar of vishnu i look at it it's a fascinating story um could you say something about um at the risk of putting words in your mouth um or, or words in the mouth of the myth makers about liminality in the story right about Uh, about you know sort of neither here nor there about you know sandhi you know twilight like uh, you know, say something about that uh, for those of you who haven't heard the story there's there's this really interesting uh, clause where you know um the, 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 the ancient ancient trope common trope of demons always look for immortality they can't have it because the god stole it or, or or you know you owned it whatever you want to say and so uh they always figure well i will find the one clause that will keep me alive forever you know uh may may no man or beast be able to kill me and then a female form comes and then and then someone becomes smarter and this is the best one ever it's like okay I want this boon that I cannot be killed by day or by night, indoors or outdoors. Um, yeah. And what are the other clauses? Uh, neither wet nor nor you know <laughs> dry. Um, neither inside nor outside. 
uh, neither on the earth nor 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 in the air type, type thing um um and so enter enter narasimha and so right. so so what do you see is happening here what is what is this driving at right so so as you said uh, the earlier scholars have noted the liminal liminality theme here uh, and uh, deborah cipher who has worked on uh, vamana narasimha actually explored the theme of liminality uh, but she connects this liminality to bhakti uh, she considers bhakti as liminal um, state uh, and um, but the theme uh, hasn't helped us really go farther uh, into the story of narasimha uh, it's not me the, the earlier scholars have said you know we tried to examine this you know she she said she used the loophole in the law um, that's what suggested to her and she used it uh, and found it not useful um, and then she used the liminality theme Uh, which is useful to understand the bhakti uh, but uh, not the story or the not the um, theology or theogony uh, associated with vishnu uh, because um, it goes beyond the beyond the um, apparent oppositions um as we talked right you know it has this uh, overturning axis and it has this overturning time uh, so the themes uh, extend far beyond this idea of uh, liminality of course liminality is central to the evil uh, the 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 guy hiranyakashipu but when we are looking at the divinity and cosmology uh, the 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 central theme is uh, the time and space the continuity of time and space uh, and then how uh, it can be abrupted uh, through some evil deeds or evil actions uh so so it 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 is more about you know having this harmony having the balance uh between the the good and the evil uh between you know the seeming opposites the seeming opposites are part of creation part of the universe but when they fall out of balance uh it's not going to be a, a good uh, balance it's going to cause chaos uh within the time cycle as well as within the organization of the space Uh, so the within the organization of the universe so um so that's that's where i i also stop uh, with the liminality theme uh, with with uh, with uh, with the association of uh, evil and with the association of uh, hiranyakashipu uh, and explore further on narasimha and history uh, within this book to say a bit more about that about uh, the historical process the historical process is clear uh, in the story of narasimha uh, because lion and lion themes predominate prehistory uh, and uh, the the tribes in modern practice the tribes that have kept up with the prehistoric paleolithic life practices um, this is the the ethnographic studies actually found uh, that many of the tribes uh, found in this region uh, the the chenchus uh, and uh, corns many of these tribes that are associated with narasimha actually still practice uh, many of the lifestyles that were part of uh, paleolithic mesolithic life um, the, the the fishing the the hunting uh, and many of the styles and many of the equipment they use you know the the fishing hooks or fishing uh, things are still 
the same as some of the prehistoric uh, equipment that was excavated in this region. Uh, and um, this region also has, uh, Ahobilam is not very far from some of the sites, Paleolithic sites excavated, Paleolithic Mesolithic sites excavated in this region. Uh, Jwalapuram uh, actually has uh, a number of sites that give this early evidence. Uh, and Jwalapuram is very important because of this prehistoric lifestyles that continue with the tribes and prehistoric habitations that were excavated here. And the second thing that is important is during the prehistory, you know, uh, Paleolithic has three phases, uh, Upper Paleolithic, Middle Paleolithic, and uh, Lower Paleolithic, right? The Upper Paleolithic uh, is the transition period between uh, Paleolithic period and Mesolithic period. And during this period, during the Upper Paleolithic period, historically, the human beings, the anatomically uh, modern human beings actually replaced the older human beings uh, that were already living uh, across the world. So, so, so the history uh, draws that, you know, the, the, the early beings that were living here uh, that replaced the, the anatomically modern humans that replaced the people uh, here, the Chenchus still have uh, the earliest uh, genetic evidence uh, within them. So, so it's, it's traced, you know, the, the male genetic heritage traces to C uh, and female genetic heritage traces to M, uh, but both of them trace to this period, 8,000, uh, 80,000 years ago. Uh, and that's when uh, this Jwalapuram and all these habitations between 80,000 to 40,000 years ago, uh, and the religion preserves a number of information from that. Uh, during this period, when this replacement happened, when this uh, recovery happened, uh, there was this Toba volcanic eruption that's dated to 74,000 years ago. And the Toba volcanic uh, eruptions, you know, the volcanic ash and all these things are found in Jwalapuram. Jwalapuram actually has a layer that has these Paleolithic uh, hand axes and all those embedded in the volcanic ash. And then you would see the next layer of uh, settlements. Uh, and Narasimha is not far from that region. Uh, so so, so the, the, um, the recollection of these stories, right? You know, the, uh, the reversal of time, the, the fire, and then, you know, Vishnu appearing as fire and the world ending and then restarting again. These images uh, preserve kind of a calamitous time uh, within the human memory. Uh, and the story, of course, uh, continues, but uh, historical uh, evidence shows the calamitous evidence of uh, volcanic eruption and these fire and that saw almost the end of humanity. Uh, and uh, the story also remembers it. Uh, and the people that lived in this area, area the Chenchus who, uh, who uh, draw themselves to be a closer uh, associates of Narasimha, uh, also uh, keep these lifestyles, the lifestyles that are noted here, the, the Mesolithic fishing and uh, the, the, the equipment that was used. So, 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 um, so it seems that the, the story is recollecting something much more than uh, what uh, we uh, give it credit for. Uh, it probably recollects some of these early uh, historical evidence. Uh, and uh, 
some historians actually thought uh, because these tribes have preserved uh, narasimha religion narasimha totem you know the images are drawn and all that the cones and chenchus they thought uh, it's tribal religion that was assimilated uh, later by hinduism but what what comes first right you know the narasimha is seen already uh, and narasimha of course is uh, gradually evolving here uh, to be part of the religion that was uh, evolving uh, in india uh, during this time so so if we consider that tribes have kept prehistoric lifestyles can we also consider that they they have kept prehistoric religious practice uh, and this is one of those prehistoric religious practices that was evolved and that was preserved within the memory and within the texts in hinduism so that's the central question we come to when we examine the historical uh, evidence in this region uh, and it seems uh, appropriate to me to connect these things well certainly a, a fascinating and potentially provocative uh, line of thought uh, there's there's a, certainly a lot there um <laughs> do you have you seen this sort of line of argumentation elsewhere drawing on so such ancient uh, pointing to so uh, you know um uh, so long a line of religious transmission have you seen have you seen something similar uh in our field or, or was this inspired by 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 work elsewhere or was it just a virtue of of what you had uh, come across in your research um, i would say it's an accidental discovery uh, but that's not by virtue of you know anything um, that's because uh, in india uh, all these subjects are kept in silos archaeology works in silos we don't use archaeological data when we are studying the texts uh and anthropology is in another uh, silo by itself we don't use ethnographic understanding you know the chenchus and the, they they're using this prehistoric uh, practices uh, is not studied by us it's only studied by ethnographers and uh, anthropologists uh, and archaeologists of course they record all these things you know the ash uh, volcanic ash and all these uh, stone axes that are embedded in the volcanic ash but uh we don't uh, take all those uh, evidence into consideration when we are talking about our texts and we are talking about this invader versus indigenous uh we are, we are you know all working in uh, silos uh, the literary studies is one silo anthropology is one silo and then um, archaeology is another you know we don't know anything about archaeology we don't use any information from there uh so uh, so i um, it, it as i told you it's it's an accidental discovery uh, to put them all together but uh, putting them all together i think is important the the evidence is there for this indigenous development and indigenous origin of religion and culture within india uh, because there is no evidence uh, for anybody coming in and occupying uh, archaeology for example it showed this uh volcanic ash and all that right all historical events are actually um, preserved within the settlements so if some uh, some foreign race came in and occupied there should be mass graves and there should be new occupation levels uh, anytime new people occupy uh, they impose new uh, line of thought and new practices so there should be new pottery new cultural equipment and new thought 
but that kind of abrupt division is not found in texts not found in um, uh, the archaeological uh, settlements anywhere they were excavated almost 5000 sites across india are excavated uh, but uh, no evidence of any forceful occupation or new cultural levels are found in any settlements anywhere uh uh if we examine these archaeological sources closely with uh, classical and uh, practices social uh, and ethnic practices probably we will find more evidence uh, for understanding how religion and uh, cultural practices developed within india uh we haven't done that so far uh, because we are working in uh, silos we are all working in silos with all our different uh, subject areas we haven't brought it together uh, bringing it together is important uh, that's what i have done in this book uh, it's studying narasimha but uh, but also uh, bringing together a number of uh, sources and disparate information uh, to to understand the evolution of religion in india i could pan out Uh, for a moment to follow that line of thought how might this be done differently then so for scholars in the field how might we go about you know for the sake of argument um uh, not being so siloed do you think um when we find when we find a text when we find a practice uh when we find it closely associated with an uh, with a social group uh it's it's important for us to look at the social group their practices uh and also look at uh, the historical evolution in that area instead of just making an argument that you know oh these are the tribes these these people have the totem uh, of lion uh, so this is tribal religion um so is it tribal religion or is it prehistoric religion uh, how old could this be uh does their lifestyles show anything uh, that indicates that it might be a prehistoric practice that stayed with them just like their lifestyle and other practices can we just call it uh, tribal or should we call it you know prehistoric so we have to be cautious uh, in understanding every evidence that we come across uh, and also i am uh, i'm a little bit concerned about the use of the word tribal aborigin uh, and i uh, avoid using the, this word uh, india recognizes uh, different lifestyles uh, and forest lifestyle is also one of the lifestyles recognized in india uh, and they are called uh, vanavasi so i use the term vanavasi in the book uh, rather than tribal or um, uh, aborigin because both of these terms have really really uh, difficult uh, colonial uh, leanings colonial uh, oppression in india uh, many of the rebellious tribes uh, even though they are not really tribes um, they are you know called rebellious tribes or you know criminal tribes uh, and they were categorized as uh, barbaric and categorized as tribes in um, colonial times so uh, using the ty- uh, using the term tribe itself uh, is problematic in india uh, especially in light of the uh, category that was invented by the british the criminal tribes and adding uh, numerous groups to it it's a half hazard addition not really vanwasi you know the vanwasi is a lifestyle people live on hunting and uh, food gathering lifestyle 
the vanvasi lifestyle is a well known lifestyle in india what sort of subfields um or scholars or folks do you think the book might be of most interest to <laughs> it's it's aimed at uh, history uh, and history of religion uh, history of religion uh, is of course uh, taking new paths we are expanding uh, as you know we are incorporating more uh, and we are studying more uh, like uh, ethnography and we are studying the folk genres and folk uh, tales uh, more than we did uh, in the past uh, in the past we just focused on uh, sanskrit and classical stories but we are uh, bringing things together we are expanding into all these uh, fields now so this will be useful uh, for for uh, researchers and students of history history of religion uh, and history of india in general you know the india the, the theory of invader versus uh, indigenous is uh, of course you know uh i constructed theory but uh, uh, more and more evidence is you know uh, bringing uh, new new evidence for this uh, so it's it's important for anyone trying to understand india but especially important for anyone focusing on history of religion was there anything uh, was there anything that particularly surprised you or or stuck out in your mind or struck you uh through this through this research <laughs> the the most surprising thing is this prehistoric uh, uh, evidence you know the prehistoric evidence actually stood out um and examining this tribal practices and should we call it prehistoric practice or tribal practice and reading more on it uh, and trying to understand these excavations and the early evidence the paleolithic mesolithic evidence and the, the continuation of lifestyles that that was a, a real surprise and as i told you it's an accidental story um, that you know this might be connected to that so uh, hmm. that that surprise i had because we are studying it you know <laughs> as you know we are used to studying it as um, assimilation and uh, indigenous versus uh, invader versus indigenous uh so this this actually helps put it in uh, in a bigger picture perspective uh and um, gives us a clear understanding of histor- historical evolution so that that was the biggest surprise was there anything else about the book that you wanted to touch on today the the we we have um we have examined religion especially the history of religion putting uh, northern india and uh, northwestern uh, part of india uh, as the central zone uh, but uh, here is a story that actually puts central india uh, as the zone of uh, divine zone uh, like the leela stali of madura krishna has the leela stali right Uh, and same way narasimha the the central indian mountains the 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 nallamala forests are the genesis are the central zone of activity the leela stali of narasimha uh, this also helps us uh, understand the religion uh, as a as a uh, as as something that that is 
um, spread out within India as well as found in different regions, not just one uh, divine place, one Leelasthali, uh, but multiple Leelasthalis, as is common with India, right? Multiple guards, multiple Leelasthalis, multiple uh, focus points. So, um, so Narasimha, the study of Narasimha also helps us understand that uh, there, there is the Leelasthali of Narasimha in, uh, in middle India, in Madhya Desha. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Raj. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, and I'm thrilled and honored to be here. Thank you.